appreciate the music this morning. It was a blessing indeed. And in case you haven't heard us speak on this yet, we are too poor to afford a new sound system, and we do not know where the rushing sound comes from. The guys have dismantled the system, put it back together. So if you got piles of cash laying around, we would be glad to fix the problem. If uh, you view this more as an act of worship than a performance, then I think we'll just have to deal with it, and I think that's okay too. So glad to, glad to fix it and operate with excellence if we can, but I assure you it is not a dereliction of duty on the part of the, of the media team. They worked really hard to try to fix it, and they just can't figure out what it is. So it uh, builds, and then it shh. But with that disclaimer, I'm glad that you're here this the week after Easter. Um, we are... Glad to be in this season where things are slowly warming up. It's a little up, a little down, but they're slowly warming up. We're glad to be together to worship God and to consider not just an Easter Sunday, but how every Lord's Day, every Sunday, is our opportunity to echo up from the grave He arose, that Christ arose, and that all of our hope comes from what Christ has done for us by conquering death through rising from the dead. In fact, we're going to find today that the sting of death has been vanquished because Jesus is our King. Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 to 21. And in fact, we're going to begin in the very last verse of chapter 8 for perspective. It has been since March 14th when it was still cold the last time that we were in Revelation. We took a break, you may recall, to preach sermons during Holy Week from the Gospel of John. And just before that, we were privileged to have our former associate pastor and the new pastor at First Baptist Church, Clay, Kentucky, Brother Corey Rash, preach a sermon here from the book of Acts. So we're coming back to Revelation after a few weeks. This is the 15th sermon I'm preaching from the book. It's Revelation 9. So probably a little bit of review is in order, not a whole, whole lot. Uh, the first couple of chapters of Revelation, you see uh, the exalted Lord Jesus. And chapter 1 is just a beautiful picture of the glory of Christ as our Messiah. You see in chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches, and a lot of corrections for the churches that are corrections for us. You see the terminology of seven used throughout the book of Revelation, and so we get to see the sevens used to describe the seal judgments, and then now the trumpet judgments as we see more intensification, and, and we see uh, continued judgment portrayed on the enemies of God coming on Judgment Day, we'll also see the seven bowls. Seven is a number of completion. You may recognize its significance from the seven days of creation in Genesis. Seven has long been understood to be a number of perfection or completion, and so often there is a delay or an interlude between what happens on number six and number seven, and you're going to see that again here in chapter 10 after we look through and preach in chapter Nine. I hope that gives you a little bit of a frame of reference for the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation tends to recapitulate or restate the same cycle of the time frame between Christ's ascension and Christ's second coming over and over again from different perspectives and with greater intensity. So we kind of plot now down into the middle of the book and we read God's holy word from Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through Twenty-one, It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, 
But before we read that, look back at chapter 8, verse 13, because it talks about that fifth trumpet. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, and it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So four have been done, three more will blow. This chapter focuses on the judgment trumpets five and six. So here then, chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, or abyss, might be how your translation states it. Verse 2, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plants or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads or what looked like crowns of gold, their faces like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lions' teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people. For five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now verse 13 for the sixth trumpet blast. Then the, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a vo voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode with them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails." For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders and their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is God's word, and we praise God for it. Now, I want to take on its parts and consider this text today 
about the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God allowed by the powers of evil. I want to take these verses on their parts by first looking at verses 1 through 12, that fifth trumpet blast, that first woe. And if you want to try to track with that, I think two words you could track with would be tormenting unbelievers. Tormenting unbelievers. When our second point arrives, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 19. And the two words that will help you hang with that is judging unbelievers. Judging unbelievers. And then finally, our third point will come from the last two verses, verses 20 and 21. And it will be the attitudes of both unbelievers and believers. Verses 20 and 21. So let's get into it, shall we? Shall we? Our first point this morning to understand the judgment of God is being articulated through these woes, the eagle hovering overhead, pronouncing, bringing the advent of the pronouncing of these woes. Our first point, verses 1 through 12, is the allowance to torment unbelievers. Now, I stole that from G.K. Beale, who wrote a whole like sermon for his first point, but here's how he wrote the sentence. He said, the fifth trumpet, demons are commissioned to torment. I just pulled to torment out. Demons are commissioned to torment hardened unbelievers by further impoverishing their souls and reminding them of their hopeless spiritual plight. You want to go ahead and write that down, right? No, you don't. It's too long. But listen to it again because it's insightful. G.K. Beale is probably my favorite commentator on the book of Revelation. He's got a longer, a middle, and a small size version of his commentary. But here's what he wrote about this first point, which I'm just simply calling tormenting unbelievers. He said, The fifth trumpet, demons are commissioned to torment hardened unbelievers by further impoverishing their souls and reminding them of their hopeless spiritual plight. Now, how do we get this out of this, this tormenting unbelievers? And, and what profit could it possibly mean for us? Well, let's consider that by reviewing the verses that we've already read in verses 1 through 12. This again, the judgment of God allowed by the demons who have been commissioned to torment unbelievers on the earth, particularly hardened unbelievers, believers that uh, hardened unbelievers, unbelievers that refuse to repent and become believers. And so they're further tormented. It says here in verse 1 again, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Now a star is often describing some powerful being or some ruler that falls. Nebuchadnezzar is described this way in the Old Testament. To see a star fallen is to see perhaps a, a personal figure fallen or maybe an angel fallen. I should at this point remind you that in Revelation, angels are not all good. There are good angels and bad angels. And that's an important, insightful point as you're reading Revelation is to not always assume one or the other, but to try to find context. So I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now you may recall from Revelation chapter 1 and other places in the Bible that to be given the key to something is to be given authority. Uh, the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven is often called the authority to the kingdom of heaven, or at least understood that way. Matthew chapter 16 would be an example of that, of the keys. In this case, and in Revelation 1, Jesus is described as having authority or having the keys. Here, there is an allowance, sort of like in a Job way, if you're familiar with the book of Job, in that lengthy 42-chapter book in the Old Testament, a very old book. But in a similar way, the enemy is allowed a certain degree of authority to be an abusive father to his own children. 
I'm sure you're familiar in the Bible, especially after having taken a quick glance at the Gospel of John these past few weeks, that Christ describes that there is a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. And so there's a prince of darkness or a ruler over darkness. And this is describing the ruler over darkness being allowed by the supreme ruler over light to wreak havoc on his own kind. Now, there are plenty of ways in which the enemy bothers us as believers. Amen? There's plenty of ways. But that's not the warp and woof of this text. This text is about how the enemy punishes his own. I want you to stop and think about that for just a moment before we go further with explanation and application. Think of the implications of that. The ruler of darkness, Satan, does not have his own people's best interest in mind. From this pit comes a henchman, henchmen, comes executors of a wicked will, and truly, like an abusive father, doesn't mirror in any way, shape, or form our good and gracious Heavenly Father. That's how we pray a lot. In the same way, or differently rather, an abusive father actually imitates the father of darkness, the enemy, this, this powerful being, this fallen angel. Remember, there are bad and good angels. I think sometimes we think that when we live on this earth, as we live, those that don't choose Christ, those that walk in unbelief and reject the gospel, I think we think that in some way that their life is good, that they live their better life now. And I guess in some ways that, uh, that is a lot. That is, there's some biblical text that shows that sin is pleasurable for a season. But sin does not fulfill. And we, what happens in a sin-stricken existence as is eventually the judgment of that way of life comes upon us, if not externally right away, as we'll see in our second point, internally. Many commentators talking about these first 12 verses understand that the allowing of the enemy to be a dis- an abusive father, a bad father to his children through tormenting unbelievers, many commentators believe that the torment is internal. And we'll show you why as we go through this. It says here, a star fallen from heaven to earth, verse 1. He's given some authority, a key to the shaft of the abyss, the bottomless pit, and he opens the shaft. And by the way, this is a removal of God's restraining grace to some extent. And all kinds of ugly comes out. He opens the shaft from the bottomless pit. And the shaft from the shaft rose smoke and the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun of the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. And from the smoke came locusts on earth. But these are interesting locusts, to be sure. Listen to how they're described. They are not described in the same manner as, say, the locusts in Joel or the locusts in Exodus. But there is a parallel with the locust plague in Exodus. We'll explain that in just a moment. It says, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power. They were given authority, like the power or authority of scorpions on the earth. Like, like, like. Notice this is a simile. They're using the word like or as. Verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And it says, in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Well, who are these people that wish they can die and they can't? 
Who are these people that are tormented or hurt? Well, it's not the believers. In this case, it is not describing the affliction of believers because the people that are not harmed are the people who have the what? The seal, you see it, the seal of God on their foreheads. So there is a kind of punishment during this life for unbelievers. So I think it's just instructive to consider and pause and consider that unbelievers don't really have everything that they'd like to have in this life. That even though sin is pleasurable for a season, unbelievers face torment too, and increasingly so as the demonic forces gain sway in their lives. And I think there's also a point of application here too as well. There's just only so far that the enemy can go with the people of God who have God's seal on their proverbial forehead. You're familiar with the term sealed. Think of Ephesians chapter 1. These are those chosen from the foundations of the earth that are sealed in the redemption of Christ's blood, that have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, that are children of God. They're children of the light, to use the nomenclature of this particular chapter. These children of the light do not have to fear the devil made me do it. In fact, I would love to eradicate that phrase from our speech patterns. The devil didn't make me do it. I'm a child of the Most High God. The devil puts his people under a powerful delusion to believe that which is false, but we are not the devil's people. Those of us in Christ who have received the Lord Jesus Christ, he's given the right to become children of God, John 1 says, and we live in light and not in dark. And so, yeah, sometimes we get scuffed up by the world, but Satan can only go so far with us. It's a bit of an aside. The thrust here is how far Satan can go with his own. Those hardened rejectors that are not accepting the gospel of Christ. They're tormented. And this torment doesn't seem to be so much external and agricultural like you might think with a locust as much as it is, is internal and psychological. I think of the bevy of psychological maladies that we face in our otherwise developed world today. And while it is true as the late Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, there is such a thing as spiritual depression, where a spiritual person can face depression. It is also true that there's a devilish depression. It is true that the enemies of God can also face depression, and it is not warring to fight against sin. It's a depression that is sort of self-inflicted as they continue on and on to rebel against God and His precepts. And we'll see the implications of that at the very end of this sermon when we look at verses 20 and 21. But just to kind of tease it out briefly in this first point, if you read in 1 Peter, you will find in 1 Peter chapter 4 that we are to take care that when we suffer in this world, that we are not suffering because of some sin in our lives that's unrepented of. We're to make sure that as we suffer in this world, we're suffering in the manner that our Savior suffered because of the righteous deeds we seek to do and the worship that we render unto our righteous God, 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, here what we find is this is describing the torment on unbelievers. So it would be a devilish kind of depression, someone that is not seeking the balm of Gilead as the prayer warrior prayed earlier, but is instead seeking a balm that does not heal, that which the devil offers. 
What it says here in this passage, as I, I look back at it with you again in verse three, that locusts were on the earth, but they're not eating they're not eating up grass. They're told not to harm grass, verse four, or any green plant. Clearly this is a metaphor, if you haven't already figured that out. These locusts are not to scale, and they're not your normal Middle Eastern locusts eating up fields. This is instead a powerful, powerful batch of torment on unbelievers that are hardening, and they're facing the sting that comes from their own father, and yet we see in this text they're not repenting. It says here that they'd rather die than repent, but they, can't, they don't do either. They don't repent and they don't die. They are, at this point, they're not judged with death. Our first point, they are tormented as unbelievers. And just, we need to move forward. Before we do, I must say one more thing about these first six verses. It, it says here that they were allowed to torment the unbelievers. They were allowed to. This kind of compatibilistic theology describes the relationship between good and evil. God is not responsible for evil, but if God doesn't allow evil to reign in some sphere at some time, it won't. When God decides it's time to end it, it's over. He's second to none. And Satan knows this. You may as well know it too. He is subordinate to God. Read the book of Job to get this kind of feel. It doesn't mean there's not 38 chapters of of hellish stuff going on with Job. It just simply means that Satan is always, always second fiddle to your God. And don't you ever forget it. You got the seal of God on your forehead. He hears you when you pray. And there's only so far Satan can go with you. So don't yield that ground intellectually, psychologically, or emotionally. Verse 7, In appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. So they're powerful crowns. These locusts, perhaps these fallen angels, these henchmen of the devil, their faces were like human faces, and so that meant that they were, they, they were understandable, they were, they were cunning, they were followable. Their hair was like women's hair, so they were pretty, attractive, teeth like lion's teeth, breastplates like breastplates of iron, they were protected, invulnerable for a time. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots and horses rushing into battle, Metaphorically, perhaps their noise seemed to consume the discourse of the earth. And the enemies of God, to their own torment, bought into their philosophies, bought into what Christian Smith calls the triumph of the individual and moral therapeutic deism, a kind of God that isn't there, that we're not responsible to, a kind of morality that makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves, and a kind of therapy that triumphs over the gospel that pierces to every, every joint and marrow of the human experience and thought, mind, body, soul, and strength. These locusts are terrifying because they're capable. These beings are terrifying because they have sway, because they have an allowed key-like key to the, the authority in this time. They've gotten out of the abyss, here they come from the pit, and they sting. They hurt their own, it says. They inflict pain, verse 10, for a time. It's a time. It's not total, and it's, it's for a time. Five months is the average lifespan of a locust, so we see this metaphor playing out from the plagues of the Old Testament. Uh, locusts have about five months, May to September, to live, so 
as you pray for the farmers, you might be able to think and understand these seasonal types of things that are being described as this fifth trumpet has blown. And you should remember indeed to pray for the unbelievers. And you say, well, why? If God's judging the unbelievers, why would you ask me to pray for them? Well, I'm really glad you asked. It's because you don't know who is going to stay in their unbelief. This is your mission. The reason that you didn't just get saved and just go to heaven immediately, I mean, Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. I mean, he's ready to go, right? That's how he talks about it, Philippians 1. Why did he not go? It's better, he said, for me to stay with you. Why? Because he had a mission. Now, you might not be the Apostle Paul. In fact, you're not. But your mission is the same in the sense that you don't know who will resist in unbelief until the end, and you're to share the gospel with people. In fact, it is the primary reason you exist. You exist here now to share the gospel until you meet the Lord because you don't know who's going to accept the gospel. You share it with them and see. But the Lord knows, and His disobedient enemies actually in this life reap torment upon themselves by continuing to follow deceptive philosophies and by taking guidance from the very king of darkness that is killing them, slowly albeit, but killing them. They can't die yet. They can't get away from it. I think of the person that's internally tormented but won't follow Christ. This is the sort of thing that, that it puts me in the mind of. And I just want to tell you this morning, if you've bought into the lie, if you're here and you're an unbeliever and you think there's no hope for you, you just need to put your two fingers on your neck right here and see if there's a beating heart. Because until that ticker stops, you've still got hope. The gospel's for you. You can receive it today. He said, Pastor, you don't know where I've been. I can tell you this much, the Jesus that I have bought into snuggled up to the profligate. He snuggled up to the government oppressing tax collectors. He snuggled up to the drunkards and to the substance abusers. He snuggled up to the people that the religious elites wouldn't talk to. And he saved their souls. He awakened their cold, dead hearts. And that's the Jesus I'm calling you to. It's not really material what you've done and where you've been or even what you're doing. The question is, do you trust Jesus? Will you look to him? Because what happens when you look to Jesus is he begins slowly, slowly to put things in order, and immediately he makes your heart new. Won't you reach out to him today? Just pray to him. The Bible says everyone who calls in the name of the Lord of salvation for salvation will be saved. The Lord is not a liar. He will save you. He will. Just humble your heart and stop believing the delusions. Let us teach you the Bible and let's walk with Him. Don't be afraid of the one from which you have nothing to fear. fear. Fear the enemy. Allow your fear for the one that can throw you into hell to be abated by His promise of salvation. This first point is indeed that the demons are allowed to torment hardened unbelievers and they're further impoverished inside in their souls and their hopelessness. And in fact, they're led by their king, the Satan, the accuser, the destroyer himself, Apollyon, verse number 11. A few of you will be familiar with John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. Apollyon is a figure in that story as Christian is traveling to the celestial city, and Apollyon is indeed a formidable foe. Apollyon here is the inspiration for Bunyan's figure. We have both the Hebrew and the Greek name 
for this figure, who is otherwise known as the devil or Satan in the Bible. The devil or Satan, he is an accuser. He is a destroyer. He's a manipulator. This is the way that the devil works. Believe him not. Verse 12, it says, The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. But don't, in the woes, lose the trumpets, because that's the main hanging structure of this text. So chapter 9, verse 1, typified our first point. The fifth angel blew a trumpet of judgment. And now chapter 9, verse 13, typifies our second point. And these points are shrinking in size as we go because there's so much background work in the beginning, and then there's, a, there's less, and then there's even less. So now, verses 13 through 19, the allowance of demons to bring judgment, even death, on unbelievers. So we've moved from internal torment, I can't die, to judgment, to irreversible death. And look at verses 13 and following. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, and here's one of the only two imperatives in the whole passage today, release. It's an imperative verb. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Before I read any further, I just want to say a word about that imperative. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This is a command. It is an allowance. It is an imperative. And so the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates had been prepared, verse 15, for a precise moment in time when they're released to kill a third of mankind. Again, not holistic killing. It's a third. It is not total. And this havoc wreaking is allowed even though not perpetrated by our king. The king of darkness, the king of the abyss, is wreaking havoc on his own. We see in this passage, and it says here, this frightening rulership of this abusive father of darkness is described, his army is described in verse 16 and following. It says, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Now, John in this book is describing a series of visions that he has that he's being given when he's caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And this is one of those visions. And I would caution you not to get caught up in the mathematics of this multiplication problem. If you do the mathematics, it'll add up to 200 million, a vast army indeed. It would have been 10 times the size of a standing Roman army in the day. But that's really not the point. The point twice 10,000 times 10,000 is to say that the enemies of God are vast, that the fallen angels are many, that there is an entire spiritual war going on out there that has an impact on the physical war that you live in your day-to-day -day life, that once you embrace it, you can't unsee it. Once you see it, you can't not see it. It's like Ephesians 6. Once you embrace that way of thinking about spiritual things, you can't not see it. You're now attuned to it. And it says here there is a vast number of mounted troops, an army of the enemy, to bring not only torment to unbelievers, but now in the second point, judgment upon unbelievers. And it says... In verse 16, John heard their number. Again, very interesting use of language. He heard their number. He didn't see their number. He heard their number. So this is a, a sensory experience for John. And 
I just want to share with you as we're into this second point what G.K. Beale says about this passage. He says, The sixth trumpet, demons are commissioned to judge hardened unbelievers by ensuring the final punishment of some through deception until hell, leaving the deceived remainder unrepentant. And that'll be our last point. I should stop through deception unto death. In other words, this sixth trumpet, demons are commissioned to judge hardened unbelievers by ensuring the final punishment of some through deception until death. So remember, they weren't allowed to die. Now they're going to be allowed to be killed. And this is a frightening army, and the target audience is unbelievers. There is no respite for unbelievers. It's not, I'm going to go to hell with all my rowdy friends. That's not how it works. This is an abusive father. If he coaxes you toward the path of darkness with certain assurances, he will never, ever let you cash that check. You know this, don't you? Could I say, like Isaiah says, for those of you that are coming to faith, for those of you that the Lord is working on, could I say to you, come let us reason together? When did the sorceries lead to life? The Greek word for sorceries in this passage is pharmakaos, pharmacy, like the pharmaceuticals. When did the pills lead to life? They didn't, did they? When did the worship of idols lead to life? They didn't, did they? When did the following of the ways of the wicked and the unrighteous gain lead to life? This vice list that's listed at the end of this passage is predicated by this second part of the text, which is really indirectly beckoning unbelievers to become believers in this life. Because the unbelievers will face the final judgment of God and they're tormented by their leaders all the way. What it says in verse 14 is that the sixth angel who had the trumpet was told to release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates at a certain time, and the number of mounted troops was vast. And before we look at these troops in verses 17 through 19, I want to say a word about the great river Euphrates. Ancients would have known what this was intimating. The great river Euphrates was the eastern battle line for the Roman Empire. The great river Euphrates would have been where the enemies of God's visible people Israel would have, would have been breached from. There would have been fear of the Parthians, fear of the Assyrians, fear of the Babylonians coming across the great river Euphrates. The metaphor as it holds for God's people, the church, is there is this great storm coming across the Euphrates, coming after the enemies of God, and there's punishment coming for the enemies of God, and it's actually being held at the hands of the devilish forces themselves. That prior to the great white throne judgment, there will be many judgments, many judgments, and in the many judgments, there will be punishment for the unbelievers. And what it actually is intimating here as they come across the great river Euphrates is these stormtroopers, these mounted troops coming across with tricolored breastplates, that means they're protected, 
breathing out fire from their mouths and their tails, which means from their mouths they're teaching false doctrine. They're spewing things that bring people under powerful delusions and keep them there. It's this intimation, I think, because of the simile with the people of God in Israel, I think it's a warning to unbelievers in the mixed multitude that is the church. That is those that sit in churches week after week and month after month and year after year and hear gospel truths but don't receive it into their heart. For all that we do with meaningful membership, and the, the service leader said earlier we're going to have a membership class after, after this afternoon. We'd invite you to that if you are, are considering that at 2 o'clock. We can talk that through. But for all of our attempts to make sure through that class that you have received the gospel and you can basically explain the gospel, for all of that, we are not the final arbiters of whether or not you're trying to hoodwink us. If there's some, some other reason why you're coming around besides actually receiving the gospel. And I think embedded within this text is a subtle warning. And I'm actually getting this from Pastor Tom Hicks out of Louisiana who preached a wonderful sermon on this text two months ago. I would urge you to listen to it. It's a wonderful sermon. But what he's, he, he availed me to, and I think he's on to something here, is that this river Euphrates isn't standing out there as a nothing burger. That it actually is a warning to the people of God that when the enemies seem to come into the camp, when the warning comes into our stability, you need to remember, 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 remember that the gospel had to be received by you that just being a part of the visible people of God is not enough. What I mean by that is just very simply this. Church members, do you believe the gospel? Is it, is it in there? Not if you lived a good enough life to be moral enough to be a Christian on the last day. That's, that's gobbledygook. That's actually deception from the enemy. I'm asking you, have you received the free gift of grace from Christ for what he did for you? If you have, you have, you have nothing to fear from these troops from this multitude you have nothing to fear as scary as it is because for us it is not death to die and we like all it is appointed once to die and then to face the judgment and we don't have to fear the judgment because we have christ it is a warning for those in the mixed multitude though that have only given a wink wink and a nod nod to the gospel but they haven't received it that describes you today. Won't you come to Jesus? Won't you look to him for your healing, for your salvation? Verses 17 to 19, quickly. He saw the horses in his vision who rode them, and those who rode them, they wore these breastplates, these tricolored breastplates. Verse 18, these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. Significant, but still limited. It says, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. So clearly, we're seeing something verbal, mouths, and the power of the horses is coming from both ends. It's from their mouths and their tails, and it's, again, like the first one. There's still this internal torment, too, as many unbelievers are dying, and they are facing their final fate. And by means of them, they wound, they hurt. The enemy steals, devours, hurts, brings pain. He does not bring healing. And so our first point was the torment that is allowed upon unbelievers by the demons. And the second point is the judgment that is allowed on unbelievers by the demons. And finally, we're just going to briefly examine the attitudes during this life of unbelievers and 
sometimes also of believers. And here's what it says, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, I want to clear the deck with this just a little bit. Craig Keener wrote in his commentary that this repentance is something that we go ahead and do as believers, right? When we drift over into sin, we repent. So these vice lists, as is listed here in verses 20 and 21, are for the believers too. Because if we drift over into one of these sins, for say, say sexual immorality or petty theft, we repent of it, right? We come back to Christian living. But this is really not for us so much. The vice lists are always helpful. In fact, they frame great prayers of confessions in church. Like in the fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians, right next to it is the works of the flesh. And that's a great prayer of confession because you read the works of the flesh and you're like, oh, I think out of those lists of things, I think I might have done some of that. I confess my sin. Well, that's the Lord's work within you. That's not condemning you. That's sanctifying you. So we don't read the vice lists to try to, to get you to doubt your salvation or to try to get you to, to trust your morals getting better so that you make it to heaven. That's not why we read the vice lists. We read them to be a helping hand in the sanctification of those that are sealed on their forehead by God. But this is really an ominous statement for unsealed unbelievers, for those that have rejected the gospel. And in conclusion, here's how. The attitudes of unbelievers are on display. Consider what they've witnessed already. They've witnessed the pharmacological failings of the enemy, the torment on the inside, the stings of the devil. They've wanted to die and couldn't get dead. They've lived through all this. These people are still remaining. They've seen the powers of the enemy's sway in this world. What looks like millions upon millions, a myriad of enemy troops coming from every side. And yet there are some unbelievers that will not repent. Now we don't know who they are, but God does. And what he's saying is these unbelievers will spend eternity separated from God. They will stay with the father of darkness that they have so treasured and trusted in this life. But now I'm not preaching to that person, am I? I'm preaching a gospel of hope to the person that is like this, but heeds the warnings of the first and the second parts of this passage and says, oh my goodness, you know what? I've seen all this bad stuff in my life, and I haven't repented yet either. What's wrong with me? And I'm preaching, I'm telling you, God, Jesus is so excited by that. Like that's what he's, His whole mission and purpose was to save people like you. That's the gospel. Look at verses 20 and 21. In fact, William Hendrickson says aptly that it's describing the Ten Commandments with the first table of law and the second table of law coming in in verse 20 and then verse 21. First is The first table is your, your false worship, and the second is your false behavior. So listen, first is about worship. It says, The rest of mankind who weren't killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not give up worshiping falsely, worshiping de demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see 
or hear or walk. They, they, they didn't stop worshiping demons. They didn't stop worshiping themselves. They didn't stop worshiping false gods and false promises. And then their behavior also they didn't repent of. Their sinful behavior. They didn't come and hear prayers of confessions and be quickened in their spirit by it and repent of that sin and be sanctified and see their salvation come to fruition on the day of the Lord. No, instead they are as enemies of God, as rejectors of God. They were who they are. They did not repent of their murders. They didn't repent of their sorceries. That's the pharmacy word, the big batch of stuff. They didn't repent of their sexual immorality, a catch-all word for fornication and adultery, any kind of sexual aberration, the consumption of pornography, etc. They never repented of it, of what they took that didn't belong to them, of their thefts. This isn't an exhaustive list any more than the vice lists in Revelation 20 and 21. 21 and 22 are exhaustive lists. It's a way of saying this is the person's manner of life. They, they are idolatrous. They don't worship the one true God, and they don't behave in such a way that reflects repentance and seeking holiness, which defines the one true God. Be holy as I am holy, Leviticus in 1 Peter says. We are in the pursuit of holiness because we are Christ. So I just end today like this. Are you sons of light or sons of darkness? Are you children of God? Or are you tormented children of darkness? Which are you? And I'll just simply say it this way to conclude. If you are still on the side of darkness, you do not have to be. It is not a foregone conclusion. We are preaching the gospel to you truthfully and graciously while there's still time. Because these cycles of judgment will have a statute of ending to them. There will be an end to them. There's a time, a punctuation point when the day of the Lord will come. But now there's still time. You still have a pulse. Won't you trust Jesus? Won't you find his healing touch? Won't you allow him to minister to you across time by his people? Join the people of God. You have nothing to fear. Join the people of God. Let us pray. God, I hope that our attitudes will be perpetually one of repentance for where we sin against you. And I hope that our attitudes as believers will not be one of ambivalence or pride toward the torment and the judgment that our unbelieving counterparts face. I hope that our attitude will be one of humility, that we wouldn't be sealed at all if you hadn't bought us. One of compassion, that once we were lost before we were found, and that some of these unbelievers are not destined for unbelief. Igniting us as, as believers a heart for the lost, that we might be on your mission, compassionately sharing the truth with those that have been brought under a powerful delusion of lies. I thank you for the hearers this morning, and I pray you encourage them. Encourage them, even in faith as seemingly small as a mustard seed, that it might grow up. Help these, Lord, because all of our help comes from you. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.